Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today is a special event. On a program, we have Mr. Chris Prentice, co-founder of Passages, the number one rehab center in the entire world. Mr. Prentice is going to offer a tremendous amount of insight and advice to somebody who is suffering from addiction. He's also going to talk about metaphysical teachings and spiritual insights. I'm so thankful that we had him on our program I myself have battled uh, several vices. I smoked very heavily for 12 years. I drank a lot. I popped sleeping pills like there were Tic Tacs. During these dark periods of my life, I didn't see a way out. It was just terrible. And the one thing that actually worked was beginning to confront and process the shadow. And during that process, you go deep within yourself and you look for the root causes of the pain. And I was delighted to hear that Mr. Prentice talks about that at Passages. He doesn't have a 12-step program. He's got a four-step program. And his teachings to get you there are a path for you to help yourself out. It's for you to empower yourself. I love it. And in Mr. Prentice's books, I think, were very insightful. They're very advanced. And it was so interesting to hear that his books had been cited by several other successful people. Joining us now is Mr. Chris Prentice, co-founder of Passages Addiction Treatment Centers, author of more than 15 books. One of his recent books was The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure, A Holistic Approach to Total Recovery. Mr. Prentice is also a metaphysical teacher. Mr. Prentice, it is a great pleasure and honor to have you on the program today, sir. Thank you for being with us today. Well, it's my honor, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, Mr. Prentice, when we first spoke, I told you how I found out about your book, and that was reading Phil Jackson's book, 11 Rings. Phil Jackson is the all-time NBA winningest coach. He won 11 championships, and he repeatedly refers to your book, the art of happiness as being something that had a profound positive impact. I just thought that was so amazing. And I've got a lot of questions about your book, but what was the prime reason why you wrote Zen and the Art of Happiness? I wrote it because so many people think that Zen is such an esoteric term and so arcane and so difficult. Actually, Zen is just a way of looking at things, events, and the world, and people, with a particular frame of mind that leads to enlightenment, and being enlightened leads to happiness. And so I wrote Zen and the Art of Happiness because I wanted to take the mysteriousness and the difficulty out of relating to and participating in Zen. Do you feel that some spiritual philosophies, and even some religious philosophies, 
actually keep the followers in the dark by making things too complex? Do you feel that you empower people when you simplify the techniques, simplify the lessons that allow them to express it on their own? Well, first of all, all religions are man-made, every one of them. There's no religion on the face of the earth that wasn't originated by men. I mean, their, their wives may have influenced them in some way, <laughs> but all religions are man-made, everyone, including the Bible. And so there you have it. Anything that is man-made necessarily is flawed. I'm sure my book in many ways must be flawed because, you know, we're humans and as such, we're all on our path to learning and we, in learning, we make mistakes and we learn from the mistakes. They're all for our benefit. You, speaking of that, there was one section of your book that really stuck out of my mind and I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more on the details. Apparently, you, you were in some accident where a rock actually hits you in the head and at that moment, you were considering or saying that, you know, this is great. This is a fantastic thing. And you were talking about how every event in your life, regardless if it's seen as positive or negative, is the greatest thing that could be happening to you. Can you please elaborate on that? Well, yeah, let me just elaborate a little bit more on the rock scenario. I was out gathering rocks for a landscape project for my son, Todd. And I was down in a ravine about 35 feet down. And at the top of the ravine, there was a rock projecting above the edge of the road. And so I climbed down into the ravine, and I got right underneath that rock. Now, remember, there's about 30 feet below me, which is the drop to the bottom of the ravine. And so I was trying to get this rock up on the road so I could put it in the truck and take it along with me. But the rock was really heavy. It actually weighed 125 pounds. And so... Um, I finally cleared the dirt out from underneath it, and I was pushing it up on top of the road. And as it got to that teeter-totter point, just when it was about to tip over onto the road, my feet slipped out from under me, and I slid to the bottom of the ravine in, a, in an upright position. But I, what I didn't know is that the rock was coming down after me, bounding into the air, and that rock hit me squarely on top of the head, opened up the whole top of my skull. Oh, my God. And it hit me to the ground with such force that it broke two bones in my left hand and put welts on my knees, red welts, from the force that I hit the ground. It smashed me to the ground so hard it compressed all my vertebrae, and I was lying face down in the mud, unable to move, unable to breathe. And I was thinking, I wonder what good thing is going to come from this. I not for an <laughs> then or now have ever thought anything other than that one thing. Now, in order to give you the real insight into what that meant, I have to go back in time to 1970. First of all, when I was young, I was brought up by mother who was a gangster, a real live gangster. She was born in 1900 in New York City. Her parents were poor. My grandfather worked on the docks as a longshoreman. And when my mother was 15 years old, she was raped by an older man and was, got pregnant. And in those days, there were shotgun marriages where they forced people to marry 
who were parents, who became parents. And so they were married, but he hated my mother, and he tortured her for three years until she got out of the marriage at 18 years old. During the marriage, she sewed buttons on shirts for 50 cents a day to earn spending money, but she hated him. And when she got out of the marriage three years later with a three-year-old daughter, she was tough, incredibly tough. And she didn't have any way to make a living, so she turned to a life of crime. And by the time she was 21, three years later, she ran the largest stolen car ring in New Jersey and had a gang of con artists working for her in New York City. And the first rule I learned as a child, three and a half years old, was never tell the truth. (laughs) She said the truth will only get you in trouble. Never tell the truth when a good lie will suffice. And she told me that a good liar has to have a good memory. So she had me learn memorize long, long poems. I memorized the entire book of Hiawatha, over 100 pages long, to improve my memory so I could be a good liar. And my early childhood was one complete, endless set of lies. I lied in school, I lied to my friends, I lied to my teachers, I lied to everyone. And my early business career could be seen by all the people I lied to and cheated. It was a wreck. But Fortunately, I was a reader, and I read of valor, and I read of courage, and I read of true love, and I read of integrity, and I was drawn to that. But with my mom, whose name was Beatrice, we all called her B. She wouldn't allow us to call her mother. She was too powerful. She had become somewhat of a minor political power, and she had made some money in her nefarious dealings. And, you know, it was just her influence was too strong. So in 1965, at the age of 29 years old, I'll be 81 next month, uh, I moved to California in an attempt to turn my life around. And when I told Bea what I was going to do and why, her comment was, what a jerk. (laughs) So I moved to California in an effort, and I made two resolutions. I said I was never going to lie again, and I was never going to take advantage of anyone again. Well, the never lying lasted about a day, because my instinct was to lie, and I continued to lie. But what I did was every time I lied to someone, I would force myself to go back and tell them the truth. Well, it took me about a year and a half of doing that before I was able to permanently stop lying. And every once in a while, even after that, I would catch myself about to tell a lie, but I would stop. So I learned to tell the truth. And it was, a, it was really a wonderful thing. And so there I was at the ripe old age of, at that time, probably about 30 years old. And I had no role model. I had never had a role model outside of my mother who was a single parent. I didn't meet my real father until I was 44 years old. And he was a writer, and I found out I was a fifth-generation writer. I wasn't a writer at that time. However, make a this long story a little shorter, I became a model truth teller (laughs) because I worked so assiduously at doing it. However, in 1970, I was in London at a used bookstore, and I came across this book called The I Ching. It's one of the three or four oldest books known to humans. It was written in China, and it was the first thing that was put into writing when writing came to China in 3000 BC, that was 
little over 5,000 years ago. And what it is, it's a book that shows what a superior person, meaning a, a good person, will do in every situation. It's about eight or 900 pages, the version that I used. And it's all about being a model citizen. And I, did, I never had a role model, but that became my Bible, and I studied it every single day. And I still study it. And so it was written, it was written 5,000 years ago, and it was, there was a translation. The, the editors in China got together, and they made a version of that book in 1715 the year 1715, and that's the version that everyone translates into whatever language they translate it into. And I received that book. I received the Princeton University Press Richard Wilhelm edition, and I read that book every day studying it because it, it front to back, it's what a person should do to live according to the laws of the universe because the universe has laws like, for instance, the speed of light. There's a law in the universe. It only goes that speed. And so, but there were many sentences in it that I could not understand. Flying dragon mounts to the sky. A crane calling in the shade. It's young answers it. Well, I didn't know what those things meant. And so, although I read it every day, there was many phrases in it I could not understand. So here I am lying at the bottom of the ravine, having had my head smashed open. Wonder, and remember, I had now been reading that book for 23 years, and my information had led me to completely comprehend that whatever happens to me was in my best interest, that the universe is alive, conscious, and aware, and guess what? It takes care of itself. And you know what? We are itself. There's nothing in the universe more the universe than we are. And the universe is conscious. And we are conscious, but our consciousness is part of the universal consciousness. When we're in the womb, our scientists and biologists tell us that we develop consciousness, which is true. But what they don't tell you is what we actually do is to develop the ability to perceive consciousness. That's where all our new ideas come from. Have you ever wondered where your new ideas come from? We sift it from the universal bank of ideas. And so there I was lying in bed two weeks after that happened, and I opened up the book, and guess what? It was crystal clear. That smash on the head opened up some channels mysteriously in my brain, and I could understand that book. And since that time, I've written more books on the I Ching than any author has ever written. Wow. <laughs> so I guess that's a real, taking something as a real negative, real positive, but if someone else experiences something very tragic in their lives it doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason like they lose a child or experience some kind of needless suffering how do they take that and kind of pivot in the direction that you did how do they how can they put themselves in the mentality of trying to see the best thing about it or the greater good about it okay listen you put your finger on the toughest of all of them that is the most difficult one but the fact is that you have to understand that, are you there? Yes. Okay. You have to understand this basic principle that the universe is alive, conscious, and aware. It takes care of itself, and we are itself. Now, the universe doesn't do anything to injure itself. 
There's no negativity possible. The universe is perfect. It goes from perfect to perfect to perfect in an unbroken stream of perfection. I mean, just look at our cosmos. We have the sun in the middle. We have the, the planets that surround it. And we have a moon that revolves around Earth in perfect synchronicity. We only see one side of the moon. And believe it or not, the Earth is spinning around the sun 60,000 miles an hour. Can you believe that? 60,000 miles an hour. We revolve around the sun. It takes us one year, 365 days, to make one journey around the sun. And the Earth is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour at the equator, and our whole solar system is moving through the cosmos 6,000 miles an hour. <laughs> That's a lot of movement, and it's in perfect synchronicity. And here's the best part about it. Our Earth is a spaceship. And we get to live on the outside of it. Can you believe that? We are outer space. We are in vast, deep outer space. And we're living on the outside of our spaceship. And we have the sun, which supplies all of our energy and all of our oxygen. Can you believe we're moving through space 60,000 miles an hour and carrying our atmosphere with us, which is 300 miles deep? We're carrying the whole thing with us. And plants and animals and everything is thriving and moving through that. And because of the law of evolution, everything is moving to a more perfect condition. Everything. So you, not be, you may not be able to see or, or comprehend the consciousness in a rock. But that rock is made of atoms. And those atoms are all alive. And every atom is just like a cosmos. It has a nucleus, it has neutrons, protons, and electrons whirling around the atom. Believe it or not, it speeds near that of light. 182,363 miles per second. Can you believe that? Seven and three-quarter times around the Earth in one second. And the atoms are, have this nucleus, and around the nucleus are these neutrons, protons, and electrons that are whirling around at that speed. It's amazing. And in addition to that, there's quarks and neutrinos and prions. We haven't seen any of those three because they're too small. And the neutrinos come from the sun. So I don't want to get too deeply into that because it's a little off the track. But the universe is perfect. And it never deviates from that because if it could or would, it would be in danger of its of its own destruction, because one error could lead to two to three to four to more, leading to destruction. It never departs from that, and it never hurts itself, and we are itself. That's not to say we don't feel pain, that we don't have seeming accidents, but all of them are for our benefit. And one, once one realizes that and acts accordingly, the world becomes a totally different place. Okay. When we're little, we're taught about bad luck. And everyone listening to me has experienced bad luck. There actually is no such thing as bad luck. But we've been some, it started when we were children, when we were toddlers, and we fell down, and someone, some loving parent says, oh, honey, that's so bad. Oh, I hope you didn't hurt yourself. Oh, that was such a bad fall. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. Well, we learned to treat bad luck as bad luck, when actually we were learning how to fall. It wasn't that at all. And we, we have learned about bad luck, and we've, 
when something seems to be bad luck and we experience it, we label it bad luck, we treat it as bad luck, and guess what? We give it the power to be bad luck because we respond negatively to something that's been in our favor all along. If we're looking at evolution, you're saying this is all part of evolution. I do. Does that mean that each individual person is a spirit incarnating a physical body for the purpose of learning a series of life lessons, and that's why the pain and suffering is happening? Is the Exactly. Okay. It's to put you in touch with the true feelings. It's to put you in a better state of mind. It's so you, you know, we're here on this planet to experience, and we're here to experience everything, joy, love, anger, pain, misery. It's all here, and we get to experience it. And this, the wisest among us looks at everything as with, with eyes that transform it into something beautiful. If the universe is perfect, and it is all-knowing, all-conscious, and absolutely perfect, why would it need time to evolve if it is already perfect? If a consciousness is, is created you and I, and the universe is perfection in itself, what would it need? How can it evolve any more to be more perfect than it already is? Well, that's the best question of all, and I couldn't answer it because I would have to be cosmically minded to be able to answer that incredible question. You know, why does well? First of all, the word "perfect" means that you can't add to it or detract it in any way to make it better. So it's already the best it is. All I can say is that the universe, being conscious, alive, and aware, wants to experience itself. And the only way he can, the, the universe can experience itself is through us. So that's how the universe experiences itself, through us, through plants growing and striving, through animals romping in the fields and being shot, through every kind of misery, envy, hate, despair, all of it. So the universe can experience itself, and it experiences. When I learned that the universe experiences itself, is experiencing itself through me, when I'm having a really good time, I just look up at the universe or wherever I'm looking, and I say, how do you like that? Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving the universe a ride, a thrill. You mentioned before as well that there are certain laws, metaphysical laws of the universe that say, well, you, know, you can't travel a certain speed. The speed of light is the fastest that you can travel. And I also remember that you had said that you, know, you had a very unusual upbringing. You were, you were brought up at a very unusual time where you were taught to lie, and then now you're a you know, person who brings out the truth. And in order for you to learn all these lessons, there was an element of time for you to, to experience all these, and now you have the wisdom to do it. Have you found that as you've progressed and um, become more filled with enlightenment and wisdom that you can get different perceptions much faster at a much faster rate? And the reason why I'm asking you this is because I'm wondering <clears throat> if people continue to increase their evolution and, I guess, realize that there are points of light or just points of attraction of one collective conscious being that there is no travel, there is no reason to even think about traveling speed of light. You just become a point of attraction anywhere in the galaxy, and you become that uh, perception. I'm just wondering if uh, that is your trajectory or that's something you've noticed in your evolution. What I've noticed is that time moves faster the older I get. Uh, next month I'll be 81 years old, starting my 82nd year. 
and I have noticed that time moves faster and faster. Listen, time is, is subjective. To give you an idea about time being subjective, if you were hanging by a rope over an abyss, the time would drag on forever. And if you're out having a really good time, time speeds up really fast. It's just all subjective. Time stretches and contracts according to our situation. Sometimes time is like a blink of an eye, and other times it... You know, when we were in school and we were waiting for the, for the day to end, sometimes it was an interminable wait. Or if we were in detention for having done something, or if we were waiting for a, to meet a loved one, you know, time just stretches out when you're waiting for something to happen, a birthday, Christmas. And, you know... When it finally arrives, the day goes by in a flash. I couldn't agree with you more. When you are talking about other universal laws, what other universal laws, maybe the top three most prominent ones that, that come to your mind that maybe uh-huh. some people don't have an idea of? Uh, maybe okay, I'll, I'll tell you one of them. Okay. We've been talking about it. Everything that happens is for our benefit. Okay. I mean, it's, it's one of the most difficult to get because we've experienced pain and misery and loss of a loved one or loss of an item or whatever it is. But listen, let me just talk to you a moment about death because that's a big topic on most people's minds, especially the older you get. Have you ever heard of an out-of-body experience? I'm sure you have. Yes. Where people have experienced being outside of their body looking down on themselves? Yes. You've heard of that, right? It's a commonplace experience. I know many people who have had, had those experiences and described them very accurately. Some have had them more than once. That's what death is. We go along, and one day when our hearts stop beating, first of all, everything that we're made of, our body, is made of earth. As a matter of fact, everything that we know of is made of earth. Everything. And when we're finished with this body, when our moment comes when our hearts stop beating, that portion, which is our body, will return to earth, even if you burn it up. But there's one part of us that is not earth, and that's our consciousness. And that's what we are experiencing in an out-of-body experience. We can actually, some of us actually can leave our bodies and experience weightlessness. And some people, believe it or not, don't come back to their bodies. They go off, and then they're dead. But other people come back to their bodies. They feel a strong pull, and suddenly they're back in their bodies. That's what death is. It's no more remarkable than any other event. It's like walking from one room into another, and nothing to be afraid of. The universe is not going to crown this marvelous experience with a dirty trick. Because, remember, we are the universe. There's nothing in the universe more the universe than we are. It's a great honor. You know, the greatest honor one can have simply to be part of the universe. It's better than prince or king or president, (laughs) whatever. Have you ever had an out-of-body experience? I have not. Okay. No, I have not. I'd like to have one, but (laughs) my wife has had one. Really? Was it it pretty compelling that she she, actually, when she was out of her body – did she get answers to questions that she wasn't able to, to get answers to when she was in her physical body? 
people I know who have had out-of-body experience have never reported to me anything other than that they saw themselves, they were looking down on themselves, seeing their themselves in that situation, and were feeling a great urge to return. Some of them were afraid, and they wanted to get back into their body as quickly as they could. But that's all. Nothing, no information, no learning experience outside of the fact that they experienced being outside of their body. Pretty interesting. I, I don't know if I've, I think I had one one time. I'm pretty sure I did, and I looked at my body. I was like, oh, my God, I had to lose a few pounds, for that, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure. That was like, I thought this was supposed to be a positive experience. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, Mr. Prentice, in great. your book, Zen and the Heart of, Art of Happiness, you talked about paradigm shifts, and you were specifically mentioning back in 19, it was 1957, sorry, 1954, a gentleman named Roger Bannister ran a mile in three minutes in 59 seconds. Okay, and I'll tell you about that. That was when he smashed the paradigm, because no one, no one said that you could run a mile in under four minutes. And You, you know, doctors said that the physical body would break down before that would happen. Engineers said it was impossible that the aerodynamics would prevent it from happening. And no matter how many tens of thousands of people tried to run a mile in less than four minutes, no one could do it. And then in that year, Roger Bannister broke it. And within seven months, 16 more people had done it. And the reason they did it was not that they were faster. They just knew that it could be done. And do you think that taking that example – that anyone who's focusing on a goal, focusing on doing something great and defying the odds is inherently or actually helping humanity and helping the universe? Because if you can do it, then everyone else can do it. I mean, is this, is this, do you think this is, that people should be encouraged to attain and fulfill their greatest achievements? Of course they can. Listen, in 1984, 5, and 6, I gave workshops in Los Angeles for people who didn't have life the way they wanted it and were willing to come and listen to me for a month to change that. And it was uh, seven days a week, and there were two rules. You had to come to every workshop, and you had to be on time. If you weren't on time when the door closed, you were out of the workshop. And because of that, I lost about 30% of the people who would start the workshop. But the remaining ones made changes, did things beyond their wildest beliefs. They made accomplishments. I mean, they, just incredible things. There was one guy who took the workshop, and the first night I would go around the room, and I'd ask everybody, why are they here? What do you, what do you want to accomplish? And this one man said, I want to be able to run a 50-mile race. So, about, and he just had never been able to do it, no matter how many times he tried. And so the night, and so what he did, I said, listen, you're not going for the big enough reward. Go for a 100-mile race. It's called a century. So we signed up for a century, and the night before the race, I held a special workshop for him, and I taught him how to run through his pain. And I, I told him he was going to experience pain in his legs and his back and his thighs, and I said, you're going to transform that into energy, and you're going to run through it. And this is hard to believe. He set a new world's record for the century. Wow. That's amazing. And do you think that because you believed in him and he acknowledged it and actually took was do you think that it was his yes. belief in you superseded? Listen, by the, by the end of the third week of the month-long workshop, 
people had seen other people in the workshop doing such amazing, totally amazing things that it empowered them. And he believed that he could do it, and he did it. Listen, we're all we're all far more powerful than we believe. <laughs> you know, I've written another one of the books I wrote is called "Do What You Want, Have What You Want," and you know, by the time people finish reading that book, <laughs> they have made amazing changes in their lives and accomplishments. Do you find it interesting that you're writing a lot of books about self empowerment? You teach people to be self empowered. Where if you you watch an hour worth of TV, and if it's not the TV programs, it's the commercials. They're all meant to tell you what you don't have and how you yeah. need something outside of you to to be fulfilled. And I wanted to just ask you a couple quick questions about passages because sure. there are people who come all over the world, and yes. they succeed. They come all over the world because they're addicted to, who knows, a number of different things, but you're successful. You have a four, it seems like you have a four-step program. Most people have a 12-step program, but you really do it. What makes your methodology and passages successful and compare it to first so many all, other things? when we started, there were only 12-step programs. We were the first non-12-step program in America. And my son, Pax, who is now the CEO of Passages, was addicted to heroin, cocaine, alcohol, cigarettes, and many other drugs. And he was addicted for 10 years. I almost lost him three times. Oh. And I have never met, even now after 16 years at Passages, I have never met anyone who was as addicted as Pax was. And I took him to every kind of doctor imaginable, psychiatrist, psychologist, drug and alcohol therapist, addiction specialist. And they all told me that same sad story that, alcohol, that the 12-step program puts out, that alcoholism and addiction are diseases and that they're incurable. And I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want my son to be broken forever. And so I continued to search. And at the end of 10 years, I said, Pax, unless we create something different, you're going to die. I mean, I had him clean 50, 60 times. And every time when he relapsed, most likely the next day, I'd say, Pax, why are you doing this? Why are you going back to it? He'd say, it's the high. He said, I've never experienced anything like it on an ordinary reality. I said, no, there's got to be a reason. And so I created this program with his help, the Passages Program, of looking for the reasons why people become addicted and are maintained by their addiction. I mean, the, their addiction is maintained. And so two months later, after he'd been in my program for two months, I shouldn't call it my program because we both created it, but after he had been in the program for two months, he was in a sober living house recovering from his last heroin cocaine run, three o'clock in the morning in a bathtub. And he asked himself that most amazing question, what am I doing high that I'm not doing sober? And he got it. He was seeing himself as the hero of every one of his heroin dreams and I was there watching and he understood that what he was seeking was my to see me he wanted me to see him the way he saw me and you know I was, I'm a single parent and he was he put me on a pedestal and he wanted me to see him the way he saw me so we met the next and he leaped out of the tub three o'clock in the morning and called me and said dad dad I said you got it 
He said, yeah, I do. <laughs> and we met the next morning, and I talked him through, and I said, Pax, you know, come on, you're only 26 years old. You started when you were 16. And I said, when I was 26, I hadn't done anything. I had been a real estate pro broker. I said, I made a little money, but that was it, nothing else. No books, no lectures, no workshops. No, I had written, produced, and directed a, a feature film. I said, I hadn't done any of that. Your whole life is ahead of you. You're going to do bigger things than I did. And about three weeks later, when we were absolutely certain he would never go back to it, he said, you know, Dad, we know how to do this. Let's do it. Well, I wanted to get him sunk into something deeply that he could grab onto and dedicate himself to. So we went out. We found this beautiful mansion in Malibu, and we started the first non-12-step program. And here we are 16 years later. And in that first three and a half years, when we would still be able to keep in contact with all of our graduates, we had an 84.6% success rate from the first person who came in to the last person That's for the amazing. entire three and a half years. We had a an 84.6% success rate of people not using drugs or alcohol again. And you know something? We can't keep those records anymore. There's too many people, maybe 10 or 12,000. But I'm sure we got better at it since then. Would, would you ever get to this point where you can offer a person all the treatment in the world, but if they don't want to truly get better, that they're going to fail? And the reason why I ask you this is because a long time ago, I lost a close friend uh, who was addicted to drugs, and he, it got the best of him. And he actually, I mean, there were people who were trying to save him several times. And he, he it was about his eighth, or I think it was his seventh or eighth time, and it finally, it, it took him. And I was wondering if that ever happens. Do you truly at one point have to have that desire that you want to get better, or is it even, are you lost? Listen, everybody who comes to treatment wants to get better. They have tried and tried and tried to stop and have been unable to do it. I mean, if they know how to stop, if they can stop, they don't come to treatment. They want to stop, and they just cannot do it because they don't realize that there's an underlying condition and there's only four. I can tell you what the four underlying conditions are. They're broad categories. The first is chemical imbalance. Everyone who is addicted has a chemical imbalance. And the treatment centers that don't find out what that chemical imbalance is and correct it are going to send the people out the door with the same imbalance that they came in the door with and relapse is almost certain. Okay. Number one, chemical imbalance. Number two, events of the past they haven't been able to recognize or realize and come to terms with. You know, childhood trauma, you know, not the favored child, loss of a parent, loss of someone they love, something having to do with something that somebody did to you you can't forgive them for, you know, rape, incest, brutality. There's always something in people's childhood, and they have to reconcile it. They have to get over it. Okay, so number one, chemical imbalance. Number two, events of the past they haven't been able to reconcile. Number three are current conditions they can't cope with. Failing marriage, failing business, long-term illness, um, whatever's causing you stress, fear of losing your job, uh, not being able to get ahead in life, feeling like you're stuck, being stuck in a marriage or being stuck in your job and you know not having enough money. And you know when you come home, you have a drink, guess what? It makes you feel pretty good. And you have two, and it's even better. <laughs> but, but after a while, it's five and six and eight and ten. And I'll tell you when you know you've had enough, 
when it turns against you. That's always the signal you've had enough because it become it starts to work against you. You start to have all kinds of problems from it, accidents, driving, or whatever. Okay, that's number three, current conditions you can't cope with. Number four are things you believe that aren't true. And the biggest one amongst that, alcoholism and addiction, and alcoholism and addiction are diseases. They're incurable, and I have it. It's not true. Look, I got a call from two men in two different cities in the space of one week. They were standing in the aisles of a bookstore reading our book, The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure, and they just learned that they weren't addicts or alcoholics. That's going to be pretty empowering. It is empowering. Sure it is. You know, many people, thousands of people have quit just by reading The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure. All the information you need to quit is in the book. We didn't hold back with anything. And when you're talking about the chemical imbalance for the brain, we have focused on this previously where we asked, I guess we pondered the question, are, are there certain types of foods that a person should be eating? Are there certain activities that sure. provide an increase of serotonin to the brain that would actually kind of offset the cravings or... Things that we Absolutely. Sure. Listen, the biggest poison on our planet is sugar. The average person eats 100 pounds of sugar a year, and it's a deadly poison to your body. And all kinds of parasites live in it. Candida lives in it. I mean, it's, a, it's critical. And the things that produce sugar. So, you know, most I walk around, I see all these obese people, 30, 40, 50 pounds overweight. You know, they're killing themselves. Their heart can't keep up with it. They're all going to die early deaths. And they're not happy. You know, they're just, they're not living their lives fully. You want to live your life fully? Don't be a glutton. Live your life slender. That's where, how we were meant to live. doesn't mean you can't be husky and strong. Many people are. But, you know, to be overweight with a big belly, it is not healthy. And all your organs sag because of it. That's the reason to, to guess, work on getting off the sugar. And how about smoking? Come on. Uh, it's I, it's yeah, one of the worst things around. <laughs> People smoke cigarettes, and they know they're killing themselves doing it, and they get cancer. And, they, and you, you know, some people have a tracheotomy, and they cut a hole in their throat, and I have actually seen people smoking through the hole in their throat. That's, uh, <laughs> that's insanity. I think it's pretty crazy. You know, there are people who've come to passages all over the world that have been treated successfully, that have actually walked, you know, gotten stronger, gotten the best, uh, taken control of their life. And I was just sure, almost to... all of them. Well, all of them, yeah, a lot of people. Almost all, not all of them, but, you know, <laughs> some people come back. You know, actually quite a few come back, uh, you know, for another session with us, sometimes three times. What are they processing their uh, their their shadow, or if you want to call it, or working on themselves more, becoming better, working on other unresolved issues? Of course they are. Okay. You know, when the, when they come back, it's because they they gave in to the to the uh, addiction again, or the alcohol, and they gave into it. You know, it didn't leap out of the corner and grab them and you know stuff itself down their throat. They actually made a conscious decision to drink or use drugs again. And it's because those underlying conditions are driving them. They haven't cured the underlying condition yet. It's awesome that you're able to 
provide a simplified version of a treatment and be successful at it because so many people out there just seem like they, they seem to be just doing it differently, making it very thinkable. Oh, because it's, listen, it's a 12-step program, and, you know, God love them. You know, they're doing the best they can to help people. But look, the first step, the first of the 12 steps, declaring yourself powerless over drugs and alcohol. Come on, that's your only hope is to take care of your life, <laughs> take control of your life. I'll tell you a f little funny story. When we first were getting the idea to start passages, someone told me about an attorney in Santa Monica who had helped several people start treatment centers. And they suggested I call him. They said, but beware, he had died in the wall, 12-stepper, and they knew I wasn't. So I called this attorney on the phone, and I told him we were about to start a treatment center in Malibu, California. He said, well, it's going to be 12-step-based, right? <laughs> I said, well, we're considering that. I didn't want to, you know, put him off right away. I said, well, I'll tell you, I have a little problem with step one. He said, that's it. I'm out of here. I said, wait, wait, don't, don't hang up. What did I say? He said, I woke up in the hospital two years ago. I had been in a coma for three days, and I knew I had no control over drugs and alcohol. And I got myself a sponsor. I enrolled in a 12-step program. I call my sponsor every day. And I go to five meetings a week. What do you think of that? I said, it sounds like your power kicked in. <laughs> he hung up on me. How could he miss it? He took control of his life. Every person in AA is living proof that you have control over drugs and alcohol. Well, I want to just take it a step further. I mean, it's, you've worked with a lot of people who are battling addictions, who are overcoming addictions, taking control of life. What about taking it a step further? What about taking control of their evolution, taking control of their wisdom and enlightenment? What um, advice would you offer to a person who's actively seeking to grow spiritually and to seek wisdom? What are some of the paths and venues and disciplines that you would uh, recommend? Well, I know this is going to sound self-serving, but I would urge him to start off by reading Zen and the Art of Happiness. There's a lot of metaphysics in it. There's a lot of good information about it. And I quoted a lot of people who have lived hundreds or even thousands of years ago. With this great wisdom from the past has guided many people to health and happiness. And, you know, it's a start. And it's an easy book to read. It's a little book. It's not a big book. And you know that little book? I wrote it about seven years ago. It's in more than 30 different countries. And in some of those countries, it became a bestseller. It's just got, it's got stuff in it that's helpful. You know, the books I write, like, you know, Be Who You Want, Have What You Want, they're designed to help people make their life easier, make their life more productive. And you know something? It's a fun book. And if you, anybody who's listening wants to get that book, you must do the exercises in the book precisely precisely that's where the magic is it's good to have the intellectual knowledge but it's not enough just reading it is not enough there are exercises to do they're simple they're part of their own life and it's what makes it happen okay. mr president we have time for two more questions and one of the questions i'd love to ask you is you wrote this another great book called the i ching and yes you said it tells the future with a hundred percent accuracy what a, do you say would be maybe two or three uh, big future events that you foresee happening or that are going to happen within the next hundred years? And it doesn't have to be something, you know, I mean, just something humanity for speaking. Well, I 
study history a little bit. I was going to write a book in 1998 called The Crash of America. And in that book, I predicted the next depression. But then, and it's always started by a recession. So in the year 2000, I didn't publish the book because I saw that in the year 2000, uh, when we were starting to go down into the into the recession, the Federal Reserve Bank lowered the interest rate to 1%. And I knew they were going to slide us through that time when the when the recession would have lengthened into a depression. First of all, the difference between a recession and a depression is length of time, more than three years, bank failure, and unemployment over 25%. And so I withheld the publication of the book. But in the last 300 years, we have had five depressions. The last one ended in 1940. We call it the Great Depression. And those depressions were 60 years apart, almost to the month. Now, we were supposed to have one in 2000 because the last depression ended in 1940. And it was supposed to happen in 2000, but they slid us through that time by lowering the overnight discount rate. However, it's upon us once again. And there's nothing that the feds can do to stave it off this time because they've shot all the bullets in their gun. You know, they just raised the interest rate a quarter of a percent. And they say they're going to raise it a quarter of a percent every quarter. Well, that will throw us into the recession quicker than anything. And I doubt that they're going to be foolish enough to do that. It takes a one-third of the United States income just to pay the interest on the debt. And if it gets 5 or $6 trillion higher than it is, we'll be at a point of no return. And we're going to go the way Russia went, where they went bankrupt. And so that time is upon us where we're going to go slide into this depression. So that's one of the things I can tell you is going to happen within the next year or two. You're going to, it'll start off as a recession. It's usually triggered by some event, maybe a stock market crash, which you can look forward to in the next couple of years. And then it's going to slide into a depression, which will last a long time, because it's going to be global. It's going to engulf the whole world, because most of the countries are broke. Well, so you're talking about, uh, would you say the depression, would you call it a collapse or a currency crisis, where a currency becomes severely undervalued or inflated? Well, listen, that's already happened. And it's happening further all the time. The more money they print, you know, you, you, you're, you're putting more money into the economy. And it's not backed by anything except the good faith and credit of the United States, which is sorely in in, <laughs> <laughs> in trouble. And the more money they print, every time they do it, it's like adding a tax because it devalues the money that's out there. Jeez, and as far as some of your your other predictions go with the the I I'm wondering, have you foreseen a period of time where we have a paradigm shift, where a lot of people kind of go away from consumerism and they go and they start having this fascination or love affair with critical thinking? I'm wondering if that if that era is going to be upon us or if that is going to be uh, something that only a small percentage of the people progressively do and everyone else kind of does their things. I would love to see what a world could be like if even 5% more people were critically thinking or seeking and spending less time, you know, I guess on the phone or doing less time uh, on other things that we distracted to. I always feel like there's so much potential that we could have as a species 
without the distraction, without the crisis of now, without constantly you know being felt that we're not good enough or that we we don't have this power. There, you're talking about a very insignificant, tiny portion of the people that will do that. Okay. Everybody is is talk, talking about their mortgage payment, their rent payment, trying to get ahead in life, trying to keep it together. You know, the amount of money in our country, the amount of people in our country that have any kind of serious money are very, very minuscule, 1% maybe or 2%. And the rest of us are struggling. You know, I mean, passages has done well, but we still struggle. You know, it's just that's the way it is. I'm opening a new treatment center in Florida now, and, you know, I'm having trouble with my bank because we just lost a lawsuit over a woman who sued us for wrongful termination. She was only with us for 31 days, Jeez. and she got a huge recovery. And so the bank is, is afraid we're going to, you know, somehow it's going to hurt us irreparably. It's not, of course. But, you know, everybody struggles. We struggle, too. And that's what takes the focus of their attention. People's minds go to what's troubling them. And that's the worst possibility because it puts lines in your face, it puts creases, and it puts acid in your stomach and your brain. I mean, you know, read, listen, Zen and the Art of Happiness, you'll see that what we think influences our brain and puts chemicals in our body that destroy us because it's negative. You know, I don't want—I could get into this in detail, but I don't want to do that because it'll take too much time. But you have to know that whatever you think, your brain is producing a peptide that's an exact replica of it, and it goes out and it <laughs> creates new cells, 300 million a minute, which is how we create ourselves every minute—300 million new cells—and it creates 300 million new cells that have more on it for depression and less for feel good, and that's what. You know, you can create a body after you continue in negative thinking. You create a body that can feel negativity and cries out for it more than feel good. And it's just because we don't take control of our thoughts. It's the most important aspect of a human being's life is to control what you're thinking. And the reason that Zen and the Art of Happiness makes such a difference in someone's life is because it gives them a different perspective on life. Excellent. And I'll tell you, Mr. Prentice, it was a great book. And Mr. Chris Prentice, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Mr. Prentice, again, is the co-founder of Passages Addiction Treatment Centers, author of more than 15 books. The gem of the book that I'm holding in my hands right now is Zen and the Art of Happiness. Again, Phil Jackson, the all-time NBA winningest coach, refers to this book several times. It says that how, how great it was. Uh, Mr. Prentice, thank you so much for your time today, sir. It was a great honor to speak with you. Well, listen, it's my honor to do it. I mean, I am. where would I be with this information if I didn't get an opportunity to impart it to people? It's one of my greatest pleasures in life, and it's really my driving force these days. So thank you very much for the interview. I appreciate your calling upon me, and I wish all of your listeners great good fortune. Hey, did you like that ending? That was me barking. That wasn't a dog. That was actually me saying thank you in dog. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought we'd just leave it in. That concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits Infinite Tooth Radio Show. Special thanks to our incredible guest, Mr. Chris Prentice, 
Special thanks as always to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Caza, and Miss Constance Stellas. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. So the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and lemonade. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.